0: Welcome to the PainCast, Conversations on Pain and Physiotherapy. This podcast is brought to you by the Pain Science Division of the Canadian Physiotherapy Association. I am your co-host and student representative, Alyssa, and I'm a second-year physiotherapy student at the University of British Columbia.
1: And I'm Kyle, a second-year physical therapy student at the University of Alberta. We will be your hosts for today's podcast. Today we are joined by Dr. Lindsay Wright. Dr. Wright is the Director of Integrated Health at Change Pain Clinic in Vancouver. She acts to oversee the clinic's Allied Health and Rehabilitation Team, pain programs, and pain neuroscience education services. Simultaneously, she maintains a chiropractic practice and assists with physician-led shared care pain consultations. She has advanced training in movement and exercise therapy and is a registered kinesiologist and CSEP clinical exercise physiologist. She played an integral role in the development of the pain management joint program between the BCCA and Pain BC. Similarly, with Pain BC, she has participated in various collaboratives, including the BC Echo for Chronic Pain Resource Database Initiative, psychosocial community of practice, and was a reviewer for the Pain Foundation course. Dr. Wright is experienced in assessing and treating complex pain, with much of her practice focused on those with widespread pain. Chronic Fatigue Syndrome, CRPS, Central Sensitivity Syndromes or other persistent pain conditions and related comorbidities. She is trained in multiple manual techniques and utilizes a diversity of hands-on and instrumented assisted therapies to aid in alleviating pain and suffering in her patients. In addition to her work in chronic pain, she's experienced in sports management. She's been part of the integrated sports team for various teams including athletics at the Pan Am American Games, Rugby Sevens Fijian Championship Team, and Canada West Wrestling Athletes.
0: Today we'll talk with Lindsay about the evolution of pain care, an integrated and individualized approach to patient care, the importance of validating our patients with chronic pain, and some clinical tips that clinicians can use with their patients.
1: So thanks so much for joining us today, Lindsay. I, I know you're busy with your schedule and seeing a lot of patients. And so thanks for taking the time out of your day.
2: Yeah, no problem. Happy to be here.
1: Yeah, so, so for today, we'll just ask you some questions a little bit about your clinical experience, kind of what brought you into working uh, with chronic pain population, um, and just maybe going getting to some clinical tips for new grads, um, working with uh, some challenging patients. So you had a bit of a background uh, as a varsity soccer player involved in athletics, Mm. but now transitioned to working uh, in the chronic pain field. Um, So tell us a little bit about your journey and what made you decide to become a chiropractor uh, with the specific focus in pain.
2: Right. My journey into pain. Um, I I think my journey is probably pretty similar to most of the clinicians and physicians that end up in this field. I think at some point we're faced with our own pain and suffering that we have to explore and um, are curious to explore and it sends us down a different path and we start looking at, uh, you know, uh, knowledge and systems that may not be mainstream yet and so I think through my own path I've uh, brought myself to uh, spend my career in chronic pain. But like you said, I really did start in sports medicine. I was playing soccer in the US and was quite interested in sports and performance and ended up doing my doctorate in chiropractic in Toronto and really did start my career mostly in sports medicine, working with local and national level athletes, which I would strongly advise working uh, in kind of the community level and even uh, somewhat at the sports level. You really get a good grasp of Uh, what natural history looks like, uh, people that are very compliant with their rehabilitation, how they respond, uh, looking at how tissue responds to different modalities, therapies, and again, natural history. So I think that was a really helpful time in my career. And at some point, again, I think my learning had somewhat kind of plateaued. And I was really curious about some of the more challenging patients that would show up in community practice that would not respond to your typical uh, treatment strategies. And yeah, I wanted to learn more and grow more. And so I really started down that path. And somewhere along the lines, I was introduced to the founders of Change Pain Clinic, which is the center that I'm at now. And yeah, many years later, now I am the acting director here and oversee our rehab team and pain programs and, and education so that's the short version of a, a, yes. a long story that wasn't really intended to get into chronic pain but I'm, I'm very grateful to be here and it's very rewarding uh career for sure
1: well that's great thanks for answering that and um yeah I'm sure there's a lot of details in there but thanks for kind of giving us a little bit of an idea of of uh, wh- how you got here and uh we'll ask you a little bit more maybe towards the end about um, maybe some continuing education that you you did to kind of help further your knowledge in pain science. We'll, we'll get to that in a little bit, but I think Alyssa will um, answer, fast the next, next question here.
0: As well, just as you sort of talked about your transition into uh, working in chronic pain, how long have you been working in this field?
2: Right. I have been at Change Pain Clinic now for about six years. So that's been kind of full-time complex chronic pain for six years and yeah before that it was more of a mix of kind of community practice and um yeah sports and and some some pain but definitely the um you once in a while will get complex pain that shows up but it's much more is different which I'm sure we'll probably get to and the complexity that you would see at a community level
0: in your words what does chronic pain mean to you and how has this changed throughout your career?
2: Oh, okay. Yeah, uh, that's a good question. Yeah. Chronic pain, uh, textbook definition, I'm sure all your clinicians and students could read that off, would typically read something along the lines of persistent pain and suffering that's lasted three months. So that's really the, you know, the bare bones of chronic pain definition, but obviously how that presents in clinical practice is quite different. Uh, The population I see, we have published on it. We published in the Canadian Journal of Pain a couple of years ago, our demographic data. And at that time, we had commented that the majority of our population has had chronic pain for greater than five years. They are on polypharmacy. They have multiple comorbidities, um, mental health, depression, anxiety, They have been to the emergency room multiple times for pain management. And interesting, actually, we also asked how many uh, community practitioners they had seen prior to, and most had commented that they'd seen multiple physiotherapists and other allied health. So I guess when I think about chronic pain, I think about uh, these individuals, which um, might be the more complex end of uh, what's out there.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely pain comes along with a lot of unique presentations and presents mm-hmm. differently in everyone. Um, as well, you did comment on pain and suffering together. And I'm curious if um, what the difference between pain versus suffering is and if those two things can occur in isolation or if they always occur um, in adjunct
2: to one another. That's another very good question. I. You asked another one too, about how it's evolved. So I'll answer your pain Mm -hmm. and suffering, and then I I would love to talk about how I've seen pain evolve. I think that's an interesting comment as well. So pain and suffering is often um, something we'll teach our patients about. We run many group classes in our program here. We run about 30 to 40 hours of group education weekly. And so that comment, one way I simplify it for patients is I will draw one circle, And I will say, this is pain. And then you draw a bigger circle around that and describe that as suffering. And typically at the point that they are, once they reach our clinic, this will resonate with them to understand that we're not committing to the fact that your pain will completely resolve or that this will go away but we can commit to the fact that your suffering does not have to be the way that it is. And that that is a flexible bubble that we are able to shift and change uh, with you, uh, you know. but also empower you to do so. And reframing pain in that way sometimes is helpful and empowering to patients to not so much fixate on the resolution of pain, but realizing that there is um, modifiable factors that can control their suffering
0: yeah yeah that's really interesting i feel like illustrations are really helpful to help people Mm -hmm. visualize and understand things and also just to understand that there are things that can be done and modified and that um there's a lot more to the picture than just the pain itself so how do you think your opinion on pain has changed in the past Mm -hmm. to where you're at now
2: yes It has. I can comment probably the last 10 to 15 years that I've been kind of uh, watching this clinically. It's changed a lot. Uh, I'd say early in my exposure to this, it was really the adoption of this kind of biopsychosocial model and really realizing that our current strategies were, you know, not sufficient and thinking that we need Uh, new models and new ways to treat chronic pain because it was a different entity than what we were seeing for other pain. And so when I was in school, they they didn't teach about chronic pain, they didn't teach about pain neuroscience, um, but they were starting to introduce that biopsychosocial model was um, something of the future. And I think it was actually timely around that time, sorry, that as they were looking for new solutions, you were seeing this introduction of opioids and other pharmaceutical solutions for pain because it was kind of this new vital sign that we needed to monitor and um, see if we can um, mediate. And then what I started to see uh, it, as the years went by was that pendulum swing kind of the opposite way, realizing that uh, finding biological and biomedical Uh, solutions purely was not going to be sufficient. We really needed kind of this top-down, bottom-up model, which you're probably used to that kind of language of not only providing an intervention, but um, perhaps uh, changing behaviors and thoughts and mindset. And so I think at that point, though, there was a period of time where there was a lot of belief that pain was much more psychological. It was really just purely um, would be maybe presented as in your head, uh, which uh, I would see practitioners kind of swing this way and really almost step away from uh, whether it's manual therapies, maybe even rehabilitation stepping away from and just purely going into education and mental health. And luckily, you know, in the more recent years, we've seen this pendulum kind of balance out a bit more and seeing that people are now integrating a more whole person uh, picture uh, and doing, again, there's there's many biological and biomedical therapies, rehab that we can do to patients, but the integration of that with uh, education, beliefs, thoughts, and doing that in an integrated way is where we're evolving to now. We're seeing centers being built. We're seeing this integrated into uh, institutions and education, which was different than my time. And so that's kind of, I think, where we're somewhat at now. But since my my professional world is pain, we're also seeing uh, some really exciting changes that are of the future. So I'm happy to speak about that, too, if you're interested.
1: Yeah, I think that's so interesting that uh or just to hear the evolution in such a in a relatively short period of time, like 10 to 15 years, seeing, seeing it kind of swing back and forth and I don't know from Melissa, your experience, but just in short time in school, it seems like biopsychosocial model has been a key, like a big part of our education on pain. Um, so it's interesting to hear that that's just kind of more of a recent, recent shift in the last 10 to 15 years.
0: Yeah, for sure. And it seems like the way we look at it now and view pain and understand this integrated approach, it, it almost seems like getting our education now and then thinking about how things were so different in the past like almost how it went from pain being um often like misconstrued or not often like accepted or seen as something that could be real and now like Mm -hmm. that we're getting so much more education towards that you know it really is a unique experience for each individual because each person um goes through life with such different experiences that create the whole person that they are now so
1: yeah I think
2: Alyssa nailed it that that is kind of the present and the future for those that are really embedded in pain obviously a lot of our health systems need to catch up and they're still kind of doing some of the things we just discussed but moving forward it's realizing that you know we don't it's not just psychological, it's not just biological, it's that, you know, it's the neurochemistry of all of this signaling from, you know, our genetics or epigenetics, our, uh, you know, relationships or interaction, all of this is um, having a stimulus that we process and has a response. And uh, so really looking at people as whole persons, but also now having more advanced Uh, tools to either find pathways for people or phenotype them and really better understand uh, which parameters would be probably most effective in creating outcomes and so some of the interesting stuff that's coming out about um, you know measuring microbiome and metabolites and wearable technology to measure sympathetic and parasympathetic states and um, resting heart rates um, is all very helpful and it's kind of advancing how we do clinical practice and from a rehab perspective things like virtual reality is really changing how we do graded motor imagery from imagining something to actually being able to virtually create something so it's uh yes it's been a fast evolution but right. there seems to be some momentum in the right direction and uh yeah it's an exciting time yeah,
0: definitely. I feel like we live in that age where anything with technology can just like excel so quickly and with with a lot of positives that can come out of it for sure. I feel like people are good at telling their stories, but sometimes it can be hard for them to have the right language or words or descriptors to use to explain their experience. And I think that's when some of that technology can really come in to help reach the best possible outcome.
2: So that's mm-hmm. awesome to
0: hear. I can't wait to see what sort of things pop up as we continue down this down this road too yeah another question for you I know you spoke a little bit on your um, illustration of the circles of pain and suffering but just wondering if you had any um, other sort of language that you like to use or specific analogies that help you to explain pain to your patients and help them get a better understanding of what what is happening with them
2: Explaining pain, I guess if we talk about the history of how pain has evolved, the one thing that is uh, very obvious now is that pain education is really accessible. There are apps, there are YouTube videos, there's so much information out there. So explaining it to patients now, I would say is actually about making it very personalized because having broad, pain education is a good starting point for a lot of individuals uh, but in my experience doesn't seem to to land uh, for for everyone and so we do run a lot of groups as I was saying here and we will start with that kind of high level let's give them a new paradigm of what's happening in their body what's happening with pain but then translating that to individuals on what they have as their own beliefs and paradigm of pain in their body and how those two are connected is is probably really the art and practice and so I will probably do that in two ways in my initial consult there's probably two discerning questions that I, I try to figure out fairly quickly and so the first one when someone comes in again most of the patients we have here are referred through medical referrals so they've perhaps seen some medical doctors before so I will start the conversation with you know Alyssa thank you for coming in today you know I see that you've seen a number of our clinicians here you've already started our pain education programs um, and then I saw from your referral letter that you've, you've already seen a lot of physiotherapists and chiropractors and you know you've, you've done a lot to try and recover And so given all of that and that you've seen all these people, what is it that you are expecting that um, I can do differently for you? And again, because patients usually come in with um, perhaps some anxiety about the session, I find that a good place to start. And with it, I can uh, discern pretty quickly what they're expecting from me and where I can meet them. And so that's kind of question number one. And then question number two I will probably pull up later after a history or physical exam and, you know, basically prove to them. I was like, oh, I, I, I hear you, about your pain, I see your pain, I, I've touched it or whatever this may be. Uh, and so given all that, I, I have some ideas that I want to share with you, but first, I'd like to know where you think your pain's coming from. And so again, this probably isn't too much new information for, uh graduates now, but again, really clarifying where they think their pain is coming from and what they're expecting from you. Marrying those two with pain neuroscience is really the art of then delivering good pain education. Because if you miss one of those, you're gonna you're gonna lose the the landing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Those two questions, I feel like, are a great way to really create a patient-centered experience and yeah. also just help really create some buy-in from a new patient seeing you. Um, like you mentioned, some people come in with some anxieties about the appointment or what's what they're going through. Do you find that there's certain types of language or words that you like to focus on being like movement <laughs> specialist like movement's always like our choice of medicine so um and i know like some people are quite hesitant or fearful to partake in any sort of movement so just wondering if there is some sort of terminology that you like to use to keep people more feeling more safe um, in their own bodies and in their in their treatment with you
2: yeah there's many ways to approach that i guess from a broad perspective some of the language you could use with everyone is one validating them. That's obviously really important. Um, but then along those lines is really just saying that they have control. You know, you are you are guiding this. I'm just here to support you. So you you let me know. You know what your limits are. There, I'm can make suggestions, um, but you're in the the captain seat here. So again, it it really is about kind of building that. Um, rapport with the patient and finding out kind of what language works for them but again you know validating them giving them the control and just meeting them where they're at because if they have a a very biomedical model of their pain you kind of have to give them a story that's similar to that build the trust and then slowly pull them uh, towards something that um, is in their best interest and so the language you use would It really reflects kind of the language that they use with you. Yeah, that's fantastic
0: to know and to just really help patients get their the best outcomes and really help them harness their autonomy in their own in their own care and their their experience as well.
1: Uh, So far, we have alluded to the complexity of pain, and I can imagine there are instances as a practitioner where it can feel overwhelming to try to navigate through some of these challenging cases alone. I know that you work as part of a big interdisciplinary team at Change Pain and I'm wondering if you could speak to the importance of collaborating with other health professionals for some of those complex cases that you see.
2: So we all have our own scope and expertise and also each practitioner really has their own personality too which resonates differently with with different patients. On our team specifically, I um, oversee our allied health team so we're chiropractors, physiotherapists, kinesiologists, yoga, Pilates, um, OT, psychology, these um, disciplines. And then we have our whole medical side. So we've got psychiatry, anesthesiology, rheumatology, um, uh, GPs, and um, really uh, many more. So out of these 60 or 70 staff and clinicians that we have, um, we can offer different layers of care. So yes, you can um, kind of do that. Uh, rehabilitation and education layer. But then we, we also have a higher level of interventional care where you can do things like facade and nerve blockades. And those are generally thought to be diagnostic. And so if patients are positive responders to that, we then have our surgical center where we can do things like radiofrequency lesioning and actually um, at least temporarily abolish kind of the medial branch or wherever the target is. And so that um, nociceptive input would be diminished for six months or more, uh, which is a great opportunity for rehab. And then, even beyond that, we have other therapies that we're able to offer here, uh, such as infusion therapy, like ketamine and lidocaine, that really um, addresses uh, central nervous system modulation. And so At that level of complexity, again, you can, we would call that kind of layered care approach that obviously you want to take the least invasive strategies first, starting with your education, starting with, you know, sleep and communication and relationships and uh, rehabilitation function, home, these sorts of things. And again, if we're really kind of hitting various blocks, the pain is, uh, continues to be a barrier to even slow progressions forward, then you can kind of layer up to different therapies. So I think having that breadth of access and ease to therapies is obviously extremely helpful and gives you a lot more tools in your toolbox to help complex pain. But even at a um, more micro level of not just kind of moving people through the system, the integrated approach to care is um, really quite healing in itself and is uh, hard to create, uh, but invaluable. So we work really hard to have a team that has similar language and paradigms and growth mindset. And so when we communicate together, we're uh, everyone's very respectful and understanding. And I would also say very humble, which is kind of One of the the best things about teams in pain is that you, you cannot be egocentric. You cannot be the only person that's going to heal this pain. It's just not possible. And so people that come into this field are very humble. And so we have, you know, creating that team that can work together like that. So I can speak to various instances where we would have a patient that perhaps was uh, perhaps a bit still fixated on you know something that they saw in their imaging and that this kind of um, narrative was holding them back from maybe something in their movement and so i can pull in our physiatrist um, and you know he can definitely he can go through and say no we've got your mri right here we talk through it like nope yeah we all agree and that okay let's look at the muscles which is the physio and the chiro and you know the kinesiologist think about what this muscle says and we We can all corral around the patient and say the same thing at the same time. And that's a very powerful tool to change a a pathway, a narrative that is um, strongly embedded. And um, if you've already built therapeutic trust on top of that, uh, I've seen that multiple times, us be able to make breakthroughs with people that it just hasn't been possible in a fragmented kind of community setting of seeing multiple practitioners not at a co-located
1: integrated center. That's a really good answer. And that kind of answers our next few questions for you actually, because we were wondering like with so many different members of an interdisciplinary team, I could imagine that can sometimes be challenging for a patient if the messaging is different. Um, But it sounds like as part of your team, you try to be on the same page with uh, your colleagues to make sure that the messaging is consistent for the patient. Or that it's somebody you can explain it maybe in slightly different ways, but overall having similar language and how important that can be, um, I, th- I think that's really really cool to see that um, that your team can still be integrated even though it's, it's it can be pretty big sometimes.
2: Yeah, I know. Thank you, and, and it's it, it is hard to do, and I do agree that you know, we need better funding, we need better systems that support this, not just at the few pain centers we have across Canada, we need this way more accessible, you know, the 20% of the population that's suffering, there's just not enough resources. And so, you know, right now, our models are set up for fee for for service models. And there isn't this opportunity to create uh, supportive ecosystems and networks to support the patients. And not only is it fragmented language, but it's Um, fragmented timing of care. So sometimes they may go get this nerve block, you know, while you're doing physiotherapy, but it might not line up with, you know, the progressions that you're doing. And you may not even realize that they're doing that. Um, And with a lot of the actual interventions that are done at the clinic here, we've designed based on evidence, you know, best protocols for how people should do rehab and do function after that intervention, because a lot of them will likely cause different neuroinflammatory responses, and you're gonna to have to modify activity to that. And so if this is all happening in a fragmented way, um, well, the therapy might've actually been the right therapy. It was the wrong timing. And so the patient was a non-responder, and then they get considered a failed pain patient. And this is of course, even more detrimental for the patient. So. Um, yeah, system-level solutions would be, um, oh, is called of four for sure.
1: Oh wow, yeah, that's that's really good, really good insight. And I think like there's a lot of good ideas that you, um, you've kind of brought up here about the importance of uh, system-level change. I'm just thinking, trying to bring it back to maybe a new grad, say working in a, um, just a regular community, private practice um, setting and maybe doesn't have access to um, the team that you might have at your integrated clinic. Just kind of wondering if there's any tips or strategies that you might have for um, a young clinician that's seeing a patient with chronic pain, but doesn't have that support around them.
2: Mm. That's a hard situation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I do speak to a lot of new graduates. Um, We're an education institution. We have all of the various fellowships come through here. So I'm quite familiar with new grads. And some of the advice I generally give them is, again, go go spread your wings, go try all different types of uh, patient care, get experience with, um, you know, community and different specialties within that. I think that's really important, Um, firstly, for all the reasons we highlighted earlier. Um, But yes, if you are faced with a complex chronic pain patient that shows up, how best to manage that? Uh, I think one, again, not having to take it all on, realizing like you you don't have to be that one person to solve this, it's it's not possible, it's not possible at our clinic, it's probably not possible there. And so again, maybe just using um, the language that we are kind of alluding to. So, um, you know, validating their pain, making them just really feel heard and understood, um, you know, and and really empathizing and um, really believing them. I actually, I I think there's a lot that happens in community where patients show up and they really just don't feel heard and believed. And so that can be actually just powerful in itself and uh from there again just saying you know i understand that you have a a complex situation going on here you know perhaps i will at least reach out to the gp and see how i can help but my specialty my skill is say in movement therapy so you know if you and i would like to continue i can offer you this you know i can offer you perhaps different safe movements that you haven't done based on what you told me you've been doing these eccentrics and these really you know challenging things we're, we're going to start somewhere else and I think I can you know offer you that but I also acknowledge that your your pain and suffering is um, broader than this and um, I think you deserve and it's worth you getting more support and yeah there's either this pain center or somewhere else that maybe this might be better served
1: yeah that. That's really good. And th- thanks for trying to kind of narrow that down for young clinicians, because I know there there can be a lot of a lot of things going on there. And I think just yeah, like like you're saying, kind of recognizing that um, it's not all on you as a young clinician. That that you can, you can reach out to to other professionals in the field, even if you don't work directly in the clinic. Um, and it sounds like GP can be a good place to start too.
2: Yeah, and I know that there's. Um, I love the passion that the young clinicians are having to get into pain, yourselves included. This is great. This is exactly what we need is another generation of people wanting to help those that have been, you know, kind of on the outskirts, really generally of um, healthcare services. So I I don't discourage that at all. And I think it's worth kind of exploring your scope and your skills in some ways, Um, but just like you're trained in school also know your limits. So, you know, some of these pain patients and not some, I take that back, a a lot of chronic pain patients will just show up at the community level. Their pain maybe fluctuates on and off, but it really is still persistent pain. You know, these are good individuals to kind of, you know, try a bit of the coaching and motivational interviewing and brief action planning and, you know, and, and integrate with whoever is in your local community. But it is just more acknowledging those that have much more complex layers um you don't have to solve all of that you know ask for help and and escalate those but yeah no I don't want to discourage the 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 young generation you guys are going to do great things
1: well thanks for that Lindsay
2: (laughs) I
0: think uh I think it's it's great to you know know that there's a need for people with this understanding of how we can support those in our communities that are living with persistent pain and um in terms of being a new grad like you said sometimes we do have limitations and it is it is nice (laughs) to like reach out but is there anything that you could suggest for new grads or even just more experienced clinicians that want to progress their their knowledge or progress their education within the field of pain science in terms of any courses or experiences or resources that could be really helpful
2: Yeah, no, that's great. And I think that's generally the natural evolution is you you start your practice and then you really start to find where your your niche and skills and interests and personality all match. So if pain is something someone would want to explore. um, Yeah, there's so many resources out there now. Uh, There's many, obviously, continuing education courses that are available. There's all the basic kind of explain pain type of courses. um, That is probably a good place to start. Uh, University of Alberta has run their kind of pain um, education program, which is is several university level credits. I know a lot of individuals will take that. Um, uh, One of my favorite physiotherapist courses I took was with Annie O'Connor and the World of Hurt. I think she does an excellent job at actually um, coming up with uh, and delineating pain mechanisms and then helping especially movement therapists, physiotherapists, chiropractors, these sort of thing kind of match care with mechanism. And that's actually really helpful because understanding mechanism is also important when you are starting to understand interventional therapies, because that has to be matched as well. So, yeah, there's just, there's so many resources out there. And then I think once you have a better foundation and knowledge is then starting to practice it but in a way that hopefully you have some mentorship and accountability so you know i know we are starting to run fellowship programs through here there might be others available in your local communities or um you know finding someone that's willing to kind of uh, check in with you so that you can continue to grow and and once you have clinical practice yeah move into to clinics and centers that are more based in pain i think where everyone's um more than welcome to help those that are passionate about it uh, the options are there and it's a field again that's very humbling and so I don't think we expect any one person to know everything yet but if you come with an open mind um, they're welcome to to try
0: yeah yeah it seems like there's a whole breadth of knowledge out there that is wanting to be shared and people wanting to learn it so I think that's a fantastic matchup. and I think, yeah, it's really unique to be able to understand the pain mechanisms and then match appropriate interventions. I feel like intuitively that makes a lot of sense. And sometimes you need to like step back and ask yourself, like, what is actually going on here to kind of target the most appropriate things um, at the right times?
2: If you're interested, I could maybe um, come up with some theoretical patient examples of how I would kind of walk through that or think through that.
1: Yeah,
2: that'd be great. Sure. Yeah. People always like patient examples. So I was thinking about that earlier. One patient that I just saw today, actually, uh, this is a fairly common uh, presentation. So I'll kind of lump them together to obviously um, not give too much information away, but this individual presented uh, with uh, persistent right foot pain, And they really kind of present with this almost CRPS-like symptoms, right? So perhaps probably several years ago for our clinic, you know, they did have more, you know, not only sensory motor changes, but, um, you know, pseudomotor changes, vascular changes. At this point, we're seeing less of that and you're seeing more central sensitivity um, presentation. So this is kind of how they showed up. They've seen multiple physiotherapists in community. Physiotherapists have generally done, and again, chiropractors, whomever else they've seen, but they've done kind of eccentric protocols to target the tendon because this person has chronic right foot pain around the heel, um, posterior foot. So Achilles tendinopathy is how we're going to treat it. And so of course, unfortunately doing that for a prolonged period of time uh, has mostly failed and this person is further sensitized. So when they come into my clinic, uh, I can kind of see all of this in their history and background. I would start with my introductory questions that we had highlighted and just kind of better understand where they're at. And this patient in particular, she was really quite open-minded and again, had kind of been through the gamut and so was open to um, something different. So that was helpful to know right off the bat. And so we're doing our history and physical exam. And What's really important for pain patients, not just CRPS-like ones, but um, majority of pain patients is actually doing a really detailed sensory exam. And this is where you're actually going to pick up a lot of differences. If you're just doing uh, functional testing and motor testing, it might actually look quite similar to, um, you know, persistent tendinopathies and such. But when you actually start discriminating, particularly at a sensory level, you will pick up Um, even just really local areas of allodynia or hypoalgesia. For her, she had very obvious um, two-point discrimination differences as well. I don't think she had any temperature changes, but once I was able to map that out for her and kind of show the difference, like, no, this doesn't, you know, if this was just a, a basic tendinopathy issue, we wouldn't see this to this extent. This is really speaking to cortical and central nervous system changes. And then you can give them the resources on how they learned about that. And so again, it's, okay, this is a new narrative. This is a new paradigm. I'm, I can I can buy into that. And then with it, again, it's a message of um, of hope um, and a, a new a new recovery pathway that they hadn't really considered. And so for that individual, it's how it started. I got a fairly good buy-in. Um, but for her and for many patients, the next step for me is not Okay, let's start GMI or let's start rehab. The next step is um, really about pacing. So, a lot of patients come in um, with very dysfunctional models about movement, right? They, again, I'm supposed to be doing eccentrics or, you know, I just wanna walk, but I, I can't, my foot, whatever it may be. So, most patients are either kind of doing the no pain, no gain thing. Or they continue to cyclically bust and boom, or they just have really high levels of fear avoidance because they've been busting and booming so long. And so you have to start there. You know, if someone is still up and down constantly, there, there is nothing I can do rehab or interventionally from my tools that will see Um, actual progress their central nervous system needs to be stabilized and that's not just by education it's this is where it becomes personalized this is where i then okay let's look at what you do on a daily basis so i ask them complete a journal i need you over the next two weeks i give them a sample i need you to fill this out you when you wake up the activities that you've done um, And then with it, usually kind of some average pain and and fatigue scores, maybe step count for someone like her. And you're you're gonna bring that in and we're gonna take a look at this together. (laughs) And um, for someone like her, you do, and you see very quickly um, inconsistent behavior. You see 10,000 steps and then a crash. So they're down to 1000 steps and 1200 steps and they're down here for a while. And then they, you know, overdo it again and then on top of that you see dysfunctional sleep cycles and um you know every other kind of adl is um this dysfunctional is kind of a aggressive word but you know it's all matching this kind of boom and bust cycle and so you know in a very kind compassionate way kind of showing this to them and say you know now that you know how the nervous system functions can you see how your your pain continues to be in a a threatened state your constantly still being perceived in danger, at least for a good majority of the time. So until we can, it doesn't have to be no pain, but we need to see more stable pain. And then in that way, as you walk them through that process, they develop their coping strategies, their awareness, their self-empowerment. And to me, this is, I could do a whole podcast on pacing. This is like the most critical piece about stabilizing a pain patient. And once you've done that, then the progressions are textbook. But the art is really actually getting them to stabilize the bust and boom or whatever dysfunctional movement strategy they have. Once you have them there, then input GMI or then input wherever their isometrics or wherever they're at in their capacity. So for her, I'm happy to talk to how I kind of progress through CRPS too if, if we're good. I think that a, a
0: pacing journal, though, giving them like creating something tangible to really recognize those patterns and understand what behaviors might be contributing to this person's experience, I think can be really powerful. And it can also just help bring the control back to them. Like you were saying, mm-hmm. that you can really help them understand sort of what is happening beyond just the science of the mechanisms of what's going on, but uh, how they can actually sort of be in control of that as well. So. Yeah, but we would love to hear as well about how to add some of those other components into treatment once you've leveled out a person sort of to a new and more consistent baseline.
2: All right. Well, everyone would be different. But for this case, and similar cases, I guess there's actually a lot of overlap with many pain patients. So what you basically are seeing is now there's a region of the body that has highly um, centralized pain and, you know, Cortical changes, and that's obvious by the physical exam. Um, But for for her, the rest of the body, you know, was had some levels of increased sensitivity, but not nearly to that extent. And so, I think people get confused by that, and they over or under treat based on that. um, Whereas you can actually separate. So, what I would do again for the regions that were less sensitized, the upper body, neck, core let's get stronger, this is going to be very helpful for sleep and just general desensitization and reconditioning. And so giving them a program there, and and that's basic, that's just starting with um, basic exercise progressions, you know, you might have to start with isometrics and then go to kind of concentric, eccentric, you know, resistance. But generally, again, if there isn't signs of centralized pain there, you can progress them as you would see in um, less sensitized patients, Nor- normal patients don't love that, but however people want to frame that. Um, whereas the region that is highly sensitized, that needs to be thought of really differently. And I think that's that's the really big difference between maybe this um, my observations around chronic pain versus non-chronic pain or whatever is noticing the differences in that region and treating it as such. So for someone like that, I I really have adopted a lot of the GMI understanding. That's where I had done my readings early on and practiced that and really expanded on it. And so I, I don't really necessarily follow that protocol, but the principles are really relevant. So first stages would really be about, um, kind of looking at feed forward mechanisms and going, okay, if you were to do some type of, um, kind of skipping lateralization here, but like watching movement or imagined movement, you know, what does that bring up in your body? And most patients are just stunned to know that even just thinking about my foot all of a sudden triggers my pain. And So one, bringing that to their awareness and then two, working through that. But I would say the only warning I would say to that is, this is like trauma therapy to some extent this is exposure therapy. So be very careful if that is not within your scope, if that's not within your capacity. I have seen that um, be very difficult and and be almost re-traumatizing for practitioners that aren't that comfortable. So that's one caveat that I actually see quite a bit as people try to push them somewhere where actually the cognitive block actually has a, a trauma background and you And we, most of us haven't had trauma training, like this is not part of our schooling. And so unless you have expertise in that, be aware and cautious, but let's say we're able to do that. So this is exposure therapy that she's able to basically tolerate and do kind of imagined movement. Then, yeah, you can kind of, after that step, the rest of it is somewhat progressive, just like you would see in GMI. where. Um, you can do, you know, imagine movement in lots of different functional ways. You could introduce um, some mirror therapy is really helpful if you really want to kind of slow that down. But I really break it up too, to not only um, just sensory, but you've got like sensory, you have motor, um, you have spatial, um, there's, a, there's a lot of stimulus that our body will experience and have to process. And so you actually have to slowly, rehabilitate all layers of that um, until you get them, okay, now we're going to do active plantar flexion, dorsiflexion. So I don't know if that was um, fully clear, but there's actually, there's a lot of steps that you would want to think about that mostly is aligned to rehabilitating kind of pathways in the central nervous system and brain and how we think about movement in that specific region. And that really needs to be done quite carefully and artfully to get them to a point where you would do the the normal rehab. And again, I've seen so many patients with CRPS-like pain that have failed GMI and community, but they're just doing lateralization app, mirror therapy fail. And so um, the art of dealing with patients and regions that are very highly sensitized is, again, just going really slow Um, addressing kind of all stimulus and components that can contribute to the danger signals. Um, And again, just doing it in a really compassionate empathetic way that um, you're listening to what they're showing and telling you, because there, there might be layers beyond just the movement that's kind of blocking that progress forward.
1: Yeah. Well, that's, (laughs) that's really, really interesting hearing you break it down an example and, and possible, ways your treatment might go and how patients may or may not respond. And um, it sounds like there's a lot of tools, a lot of overarching concepts that we can use as clinicians, but then also realizing that um, it's important to tie that back to the patient always so that they they have the buy-in or they can connect what you're, you're putting down for them. They can connect that to their own experience. And I think that's um, a really insightful and cool patient example for sure.
0: Yeah, I feel like sharing a perfect uh, patient example really helps illustrate and bring together a lot of the things we talked about today, um, including just starting from where we were with education to really understanding that that's just the tip of the iceberg and that there's so many things that need to go into somebody's treatment before you might even get them moving or get them doing um, activity that they might be doing in other parts of the body without any difficulties. Just knowing that it can take a process to get there, but I feel like patience with this uh, population can be really crucial in um, helping them really improve in in their experience.
2: Yeah, well, thank you. And I guess if I loop back to kind of your first question of why I've gotten into this, is I I didn't really plan to, and I didn't know what to expect, but the process of learning, these various tools and experiences as a clinician and having the privilege of patients trust you and, and work through that has been such a rewarding process for, you know, not myself, but to actually see the impact it has on patients is, um, you know, it's impossible to describe. So, you know, thank you to both of you that are inspired to work in this field. Um, I think uh, you'll find it rewarding and challenging, <laughs> but um you know you can make a big difference so uh, thank you for making this information more accessible it's great
0: so on behalf of kyle and i we just want to thank you uh, for coming on today um dr lindsay Wright. you're our first uh (laughs) first guest speaker on our pain cast so i think uh i think you're gonna start things off to a great start and um thank you again for your time tonight
2: thank you to you both
1: We'll